Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. All is right with the world. The rain is back in her seat with her daughter, Lisa. Good to see you back again, where you belong, may I add. And by the way, did you guys notice how beautiful this building looks today with all the decorations? Yep. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Marilyn, Margie, and I don't know if anybody else is with you, but it looks fantastic. Thank you. All right, let's begin by praying together. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know that you didn't have to give him to us. We were lost and dead in our sins. We were your enemy, and yet you were willing to sacrifice your own son, your only one, so that we might be with you. It's by faith alone in Christ alone, and it's that simple for somebody to be saved. We thank you so much that you raised him from the dead on the third day, so that whoever believes in him will be justified, declared righteous forever. Father, today we also ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction. We pray for the persecuted church today, Father. They really need you, and as you know, there's more and more Christians being persecuted around the globe. We just pray, Father, for their strength, for them to have the hope that is promised in your word. And we also pray, Father, that members of the body of Christ that are in countries that are not being persecuted right now would come to the aid and assistance in prayer for those who are. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again. This month we're featuring Mission Aviation Fellowship. As many of you know, their mission is to share the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ through aviation, planes, and technology. They go to isolated people around the world that can, that where the only way really to reach them is by air. And so that these people may be physically and spiritually transformed. They provide help to missionaries and indigenous churches, evangelists. They also provide access to medical care, provide disaster relief, and they also support mission, community development projects. And again, in some of the remote, most remote places of the earth. For example, we saw last week this story. This is in Papua, Indonesia, and uh, New Guinea, rather. And we saw about this, this group that was there, and they were evangelized by missionaries that were supported by Mission Aviation Fellowship. And then they knew that just around the corner, just past the horizon, there was another uh, group of people, another tribe, that hadn't heard the gospel yet. And they saw the difference between their hope and their despair. They're worshiping the one true God and being filled with idolatry. It's the power of the word of the cross at work again. So we continue to pray for Mission Aviation Fellowship and support them in any way that we possibly can. By the way, next Sunday we'll have our church luncheon. And uh, please let Jack Bovenay sitting in the back there this morning. Let him know what you're bringing so he can plan accordingly. Now Christmas is coming soon. I want to let you know what our schedule is going to be. We're going to meet on the regular Sunday services. All right. So I believe it's Sunday the 22nd and Sunday the 29th. That in between, in between Christmas and New Year's, we will not be having Bible study. But just that one. Following week will resume. I believe that date is January 2nd, 2020 will be the after we will resume Bible study. Not having it between Christmas and New Year's. All righty, let's get started with today's message. Anybody needs a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you have one. Um, the preaching of the Word, you want to hear it, you also want to see it, okay, because that helps you with your understanding. And also, when you, when you leave here, I encourage you always to go back to the passage that we've studied, and therefore, you know, study the Bible on your own, all right? That's uh, your privilege, 
as a member of the body of Christ. We'll take, please take advantage of it along with prayer on a daily basis. Alrighty, the title of today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. And today, please turn first of all to verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. And that's where we will pick things up this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. In this chapter, Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians that the spiritual gifts that they so highly prized were nothing if they didn't have love. And so in this chapter, he is bringing out the supremacy of love, how that should guide us in all our interactions with one another. And as a matter of fact, the spiritual gifts really can't operate to their fullest until you have a heart full of love. And he's going to teach that. He already started in the first three verses that we saw last week. All right, let's pick it up today in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love does not take account into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, up to this point, Paul has been addressing and dealing with different kinds of divisive behavior. Things that would break up the congregation. And a lot of it had to do with selfishness and boasting and all the things here that we see in the negative. So that's why you know, some people like to pull this passage out and sit it by itself. Because it is a great, wonderful chapter in God's word. I encourage you to go back to it again and again. At the same time, it's really important to understand, as always, the context. The reason for that here is that it will provide linkages into our own life. We'll understand why did Paul have to deal with the Corinthians in the way that he did, even in this chapter about love, and therefore it will deepen, hopefully, your desire and thirst to have the Holy Spirit build you up in love in the areas that you may have in common with some of the misbehavior that the Corinthians were involved in. So that's the context. Now we know in chapter 12, going back to that, don't turn there, but Paul started to deal with another problem, another set of bad behaviors, and it had to do with the improper use of spiritual gifts. They were using them. Some boasted that they had better gifts than others, and they were using it in an improper way. They were using it selfishly, and Paul had to start that dealing with that in chapter 12, and we've seen that. God designs the spiritual gifts to build up the church. The saints in Corinthians abused them. They abused them and they went the opposite. Rather than building up, they were tearing down, even with the spiritual gifts. God certainly does not distribute spiritual gifts so that the saints can boast. And yet, that's what happens too often. Instead, he gave them for the common good. Now, what is the common good? The common good is what's best for everybody. And by the way, that's a pretty good definition of love, thinking about what's best for others. And that's what the spiritual gifts were designed for. They were designed for us to use them in a loving manner in our relationships with one another. And if it doesn't have that, it's nothing. The gift without love is nothing. That's what he talked about last week. Throughout this letter, time and time again, we've seen Paul urging the saints in Corinth to stop being selfish. To start thinking about the needs of others. He had to deal with that so many times. He had to deal with that in chapter 6. When, they were, when brother was taking brother to court, 
He had to deal with that in chapters 8 through 10. When, when the strong, the ones that thought that they knew more than everybody else, were behaving with respect to idolatry in a manner that could ruin other people. So he had to deal with love. In chapter 11, he's dealing with the Lord's Supper. And he has to deal with the fact that even there, there's rivalries. There's some that have more, some that have less. And the ones with more didn't share with the ones who had less. So again and again, Paul is seeing what's going on in Corinth by the letter they sent, by the report that came from other people, and he's seeing all of this divisive behavior. And he has to time and again in this letter urge them, stop being so selfish. Start thinking about the needs of others. We need to be reminded about that. By the way, I just got a puppy. I did. A little golden doodle. The reason I bring that up is because, you know, I'm tr- we're training him. And believe me, it takes both of us and, and more. And the, the, what I'm noticing already is that when you introduce, like, a good behavior and reward him for it, like, for the next two days, he's got it. But on the third day, it's as if he never even started. He forgets it. So he has to be reminded. Now, why do I bring that up? I'll tell you why. We have to be reminded over and over again about the same things the Corinthians needed to be reminded about. We can slip into a selfish way of life. We can stop thinking about the needs of others. And so Corinthians is all about, look, this is really bad behavior. You don't want to be involved in any of it, but I know you are. And to the extent you are, you're not living in love. How, what's the solution? Stop thinking about all about you and think about other people. It's really simple, but because we're who we are in the flesh, we need to hear it again and again and be challenged by it. This is a challenging part of the Word of God. You don't think about that, usually, because this passage, again, we talked about this, is usually, you know, you hear it most often at weddings. And if there's one place, you know, you would think that the challenge for the, for the people hearing it wouldn't be there. We're just here for a good time. We want to, you know, celebrate a wedding. But in reality, this is a very challenging passage, and we'll see more of that today. God's design of the spiritual gifts is to preserve unity in the congregation. Their abuse of spiritual gifts produced division in the congregation. The opposite of what God wanted from the gifts. So that's, that's all the way to chapter 12. He's dealing again and again with selfishness and people not thinking about the needs of others. Here in chapter 13, he's going to bring all of that to its logical conclusion. It's, it's, he's been saying things a little bit at a time, but here he's going to come right out and say, here's your problem. You're not loving. If you're not loving, none of these other things matter. You can, have, right, you can have the gift of faith so as to move mountains. But if you don't have love, it's useless. That's what he's said. So chapter 13 is a climax. And here he speaks of love as the ultimate antidote to what? To selfish, boastful, thoughtless behavior. It was going on in the Corinthian church. It's going on in all churches. Yes, including ours at times. Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. You and I still have the flesh. All right? It's always going to be reacting to things. You're always going to have a temptation at times to feel like, you know what? People are taking me for granted. Nobody's paying attention to me. We all have those things going on, and let's be honest about it. We're all boastful at times, right? You know, if something's good and you want to, like, kind of let it out and let everybody know about it and get like a better boy, you know, like my dog. So we're all in this camp together. We're all dealing with some of these things, not to the extent the Corinthians were. I've never seen a church as bad as that, all right? 
I've never seen a church where all the things going wrong at the same time, including a man sleeping with his father's wife. Now, I, you know, that's something that, and, and that's the least of it. I'm mean, not the least of it, but that's only one thing. You know, they were taking each other to court. You got to picture this. One congregation, all of these bad behaviors. It's uh, something to be old. Going into idols' temples, you know, um, coming to the Lord's Supper, and one brings all this magnificent food and drink, and they're in one corner with all their rich friends, and they're enjoying all of that, and then all the way out, remember we saw that, the inner circle, the outer circle, the outer circle people, they're working hard, they're servants, they're coming in, and they, don't, they may not have any money to bring anything to the feast. So they're hungry, while others are gorging themselves, and as a matter of fact, they're getting drunk. Now, that's a problem. I mean, we're having a luncheon next Sunday. Picture what that would be like. You know, if the, if the person who, who brought the ham was saying, nope, sorry, this is the best meat, and we're going to keep it. Oh, you're my friend, come on over. But no, not you. They were doing that. So there's, there's never going to be a congregation, I hope, praise, praise God, that will ever be that bad. But we can't let that put us in this place of ease because we have some of the same things. Not all of them, but some of them. And we all need to deal with these in our lives. Love is what will conquer this. Love, as he says at the, beginning, at the end of chapter 12, is the more excellent way. Now, to repeat from last week, I want to once again stage uh, this chapter. It's in three stages. We've been here, this is where we were last Sunday, where Paul, verses 1 to 3 now, contrasts, here's a gift without love. Nothing, right? Nothing worthless. Here's a gift with love. And now he's going to go into describing what that love is all about. So that's what, that's what chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, teaches us. A spiritual gift, no matter how spectacular it is, is of no value if there's no love there. A man can get up and preach the most magnificent message of all time, but if he doesn't have love in his heart for the people, it's not worth anything. I know you've been taught otherwise, but the fact of the matter is, is that the, the, the relationship between a communicator and the people is really vital. After all, you know, the, if, if, you're, if you know that the person up there could care less about you and is living a selfish life and um, is violating half the things that he's preaching, that's, that's going to be hard to take that in. So love governs all of the gifts, including the communication. I dare say especially the communication gifts. All right, today we're going to be in verses 4 to 7, and a little bit of 8. And this describes what love does. Now, I want you to make sure you understand this. I'm going to emphasize this, repeat this several times. See, we read love is. Love is patient. But as a matter of fact, and that sounds like an adjective, that's a quality, I'm a patient guy. As a matter of fact, though, all the statements here are verbs, love shows patience towards others. Love gives kindly, and so forth. They're all verbs, okay? So it's what love does and what love does not do, okay? Love does show patience with others. Love does not turn into jealousy. It's not a jealous lifestyle. What love does and what love doesn't do. The third, and we'll get to this next week, the third stage, the third section of chapter 13 finally puts spiritual gifts in their proper place. And we'll see more about that next week. And again, Paul has shown that the greatest gifts are nothing if love is absent. But now he's going to go and say, what about when love is present? What does that look like? 
And the loving question here in verses 4 to 8, that more excellent way, is nothing less than this. It's the love of God. When, you, when we hear these different statements in chapter 13, the first thing you want to see is that what's being featured here is God's love. God's love for us and the fact that the Holy Spirit keeps pouring God's love into our hearts. So what I'm saying is, is that this love ultimately is a supernatural thing. Nobody can do all of these things in their flesh. Okay? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit pouring the love of God into our hearts can we begin to live this way. And it is a beginning and it is something that takes time and it is something that is to be practice to be to be patterned after Christ and after Paul and sometimes too and that through that living we now see that more and more of what is described here characterizes your life your behavior but make no mistake when Paul is describing this love he's talking about God's love the greatest love of all sorry Whitney Houston for those of you get that reference never mind she sang a song that learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all Great lady, great voice, but that was not right. (laughs) No, understanding how much God loves you is the greatest love of all. Please turn to 1 John. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 13, but 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. You know, like 1 Corinthians, we tend to treat the letter of 1 John as the love letter. And indeed, parts of it it is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. But at its roots, at its heart, it's dealing with false teachers and says some really tough things. So it's, very, it's not that unlike 1 Corinthians in that respect. In any event, 1 Corinthians three sixteen. We know love by this. By what? He laid down his life for us. If you, ever, if you stop and you want to say, what does God's love look like? It looks like Christ as he's laying down his life for us. That's the ultimate love. That's the love of God. Now, we will never be called upon to bear the sins of the world. We will never be called upon to be to necessarily to die on a cross. Certainly not for the reason the Lord did. But it should trigger something. It should say, you know what? I want to be that, I want to exhibit that same kind of love. Not in the same way, but the same kind of love. What is it? What does he say? This, this is how you model the love of God in the same way that Jesus did. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't necessarily mean die for them. What it does mean is to sacrifice at times for people. That's our life. We lay it down for others. We don't always just think about ourselves and what I need today. We also give time to other people. We give resources that, that are, are, we have the capability of giving to other people. That's what he's talking about. He goes on and says that, notice. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? When you see a brother in need or a sister and you close your heart. See, that's the worst part of what we're talking about. A lot of people would say, well, you didn't meet the need. That's true. But where did that come from? It came from closing your heart against somebody. It's tempting to do that. We, all, we, we sort of want to turn away sometimes when we see somebody in great need because it's too much. 
Because we feel like too much will be expected of us if we turn and, and take care of them in any way. But the worst part of that is when we turn our heart against them. The very thing they need most at that time is a brother or a sister that is loving towards them. You may not be, look, they may have a need too great. You may not be able to satisfy their physical need. But you sure as heck can satisfy their spiritual need at that time. Never close your heart against a brother or a sister. And then verse 18, he says it another way. He says, little children, by the way, he, say, he talks to them sometimes as little children in this letter. Sometimes as strong young men. Sometimes as adults. When he talks about them as little children, he's addressing sort of the baby-believing part of people. Right? As Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I couldn't feed you solid food. I had to give you milk because you weren't ready and you're still not ready. That's kind of what John is saying here. To the extent that you're just loving with word and tongue. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, I'll always be there for you. And as soon as the words come out of your mouth, the heart closes and you turn. He says, that's not love. Love doesn't do that. Just words, just the tongue. But indeed, in truth, indeed, what is being done. That is, a, that, look, that is a big part of the Christian life after we're born again. Works will not save us, but we are called by the Lord to take care of one another. The deeds that are done in the flesh is how we'll be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for salvation, but for reward. That our life in review will be a life where we took to heart, or we didn't, the fact that, you know, love one another as I have loved you, what Jesus said. So now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at the different facets of this love. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4 again. Now, the reason why we can pull this out and just say, wow, this is a great hymn to love, is because here, Paul is being subtle, finally. He wasn't always There were times when he was very direct, it's sometimes even a bit harsh, but now he's not. What is he doing? But he's still rebuking them, but it's subtle. Sometimes you have somebody who's behaving in a certain area terribly, and then the time is right at times to rebuke them directly. But there are other times when instead you turn to behavior that's the opposite, and you start talking about it. And then they think, on their own, they'll be thinking, hey, that's not me. That's what he's doing here. He's, he, he understands and knows, and they know too by this time, that their behavior is the opposite of love. He doesn't come right out and rebuke them any longer. He doesn't have to. Instead, what he does is he personifies love. It's like he makes love into a person. Okay? Now, why is that interesting? Well, love, we know love is not a person except for God, Jesus Christ. But in our everyday life, it's not. But he's personifying. It's, it's as if there's a person here. And what he's doing is he's drawing them into this. He's saying, I want you to think of yourselves as the person. Are you doing this? You see, he's saying, I want you to put yourself in this, even though I'm no longer rebuking you directly. In other words, he'll say, and he says it here, love does not brag. Do you? You see how that works? He doesn't have to say anything. You just have to put the right suggestion out there, the right picture out there. Do you look anything like this right now? And if they're being honest with themselves, they're going to say no. Of all the things that they can't deny in this letter, I hope you know from us going through it, it's bragging, boasting. They do it again and again and again. And that's, how his, that's his technique here. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love exhibits patience. 
Love acts kindly toward others. Love is not envying what other people have. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love, personified, bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now again, I mentioned this briefly. If you look at verse 4, the English suggests that patient, kind, jealous, and arrogant are adjectives. They use describe qualities of people. But in fact, in the Greek text, they show up as verbs. So in other words, rather than love is patient, it would be more accurate to say love puts up with difficult people. You see that? Rather than say love is kind, it ought to be love shows kindness to others. It's action, you see, action. Love is active. This is the key thing that I think people forget, neglect. Okay? Good, it's good to have love in your heart. But love actually by its nature is active. You know, I'll just give you, I've given this example before. For God so loved the world that he stayed in heaven, but every year he would send Hallmark cards to the lost and the dying. Now, would you feel, you'll be like, that's, that's the good news? Right? Love acts on behalf of the one loved. Love acts and must act. The love of God has to act for the well-being of the one who is loved. So if you want to have God's love at work in your life, it means you have to act for the well-being of others. You have to act to preserve the common good and support it. It's not just a good feeling. It's not just knowing the doctrine. It's actually acting on behalf of the one that you love for their benefit, for their well-being. Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, in this section, you may have picked up on this. There are 16 different statements here. That's a lot. You know, love is love, love, right? There's 16, okay? What's interesting is that over half are negative. Nine are what love does not do. Now, again, this is so appropriate for the Corinthians and also for us. Why? Because he's going to address all the things that are the opposite of love. You see, and, and, and in the case of the Corinthians, he's going to be reviewing all the bad behaviors that he's already had to deal with in chapters 1 to 12. But he's doing it in a new way. He's saying, you know, love, the love of God, doesn't do what you've been doing. And that stings, if you think about it. And it, it, it but it's not direct, all right? He just puts it out there. This is what love looks like. This is what love does not look like. So nine negative statements about what love doesn't do. And then seven positive statements about what love does do. There's both here. You know, the saints, the descriptions here of the negative things, they were envious of others. They boasted. They were arrogant. They were puffed up. And essentially what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm going to bring more attention to the negative statements now. Okay, there's more of them. And this is, again, this is, this is you. I'll put it up a mirror here in chapter 13. And so he says, listen, the more excellent way, that's how he introduces chapter 13, I will show you a more excellent way. He's saying that more excellent way is living in love and you're not doing that. It's the opposite of your current ways. Mend your ways is, is the message, the simple message of what he's saying. And remember too, 
Don't forget the context. Okay, what do I mean by that? Chapter 13 comes after chapter 12 and before chapter 14. See, I was paying attention in second grade when we got beyond the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you know. But it's true, right? What I, why do I say that? Well, because you have to think, what's chapter 12 about, right? The spiritual gifts and how they are all, they're all working together for the common good. And then we haven't been there yet, but chapter 14 goes back to the spiritual gifts and basically says that the one that helps more is greater than the one that helps fewer or less. So it's all about spiritual gifts. Here he's saying, look, the gift of tongues is nothing if it results in jealousy. The gift of tongues is nothing if all it does is bring you out boasting and bragging. The spiritual gifts are nothing. The gift of tongues, the gift of miracles for that matter, are nothing if done in arrogance, as so often it is. You think about the faith healers today, the miracle workers today. Are they behind the scenes thinking about the love of the other person? What is it all about? Hey, I'm here, you know. Let the miracles begin, right? No, that's the opposite. of the. Now, we don't have the gift of miracles. That doesn't mean God doesn't produce miracles because he does. As a matter of fact, nobody in the first century ever had produced a miracle other than by God's decreeing it shall be so and supplying the power in that moment. There's no such thing even back then as somebody who had the gift of miracles and at his own behest he would say, now it's time for a miracle. The cameras are on. It's prime time. Never. It was always at a certain point God gave that man an ability to say heal for that situation. Even Jesus Christ would say of his miracles. It was only when the Father said, I should produce this miracle, that I did. And of course, the Father was laying out the life of Jesus because it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and now it came to pass. So the positives, on the other hand, were things that Paul and the Lord did. You might say, why does Paul belong there? Shouldn't it just be the Lord? Well, here's the thing about that. You see, we all need models. We all need to see things in action. Okay, so Paul was the one who listened to the Lord. He had revelation that was given directly by the Lord. But yet we see time and time again how he lived out the love in amazing ways. He was never, even when he was beaten and left for dead, he didn't quit. He didn't give up. And so it's appropriate that he would say, listen, look at my life. Okay, this is an example, not as great an example as the Lord, but in our time, in our place, this is an example for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because ultimately, the Corinthians should imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. That's the formula. As a matter of fact, please turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Let's go back a couple of chapters. This is exactly what Paul says. And he's talking about love. Corinthians should imitate Paul as he imitates Christ in the matter of love above all. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I, see he's given himself as an example now, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for others. And with, the, with the stakes as high as they possibly could be. The salvation of the people he was preaching to. And sacrificing for. 
And then he wraps it all up in verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In other words, be, be imitating Paul in the manner and to the extent that he's imitating Christ. That's what's really being said here. All right, so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to briefly consider what each of these 16 statements are saying about love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Now here's the deal. We've got about a half hour to go through 16 statements. So please forgive me if I go through this somewhat rapidly. That's an average of less than two minutes per statement. Not that I'm going to be timing every one. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Or again, love puts up with miserable people. Love displays kindness to the ones who are not displaying it back. Love does not try to take what is others. Jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Let's take the first one. Love is patient. The Greek word is makrothumeo. I say that because way back, probably like, I don't know, six, seven years ago, we studied the two kinds of patience. One has to do with people, and the other has to do with circumstances. Hupomone. Okay, that's another Greek. But here, the fact that it's this one means it has to do with being patient with people. With people. That's what he's talking about. It means to put up with difficult people. That's hard to do. Here already, we can see that the love of God is not like us. When we have difficult people, we either want to walk away or growl at them, or maybe walk away and talk about them, you know, but certainly not to put up with them, to restrain yourself from lashing out in anger, as so many of us have done. You know, I've reached the boiling point with you, Right? And, and it's in families, my observation, it's usually in families that this is happening the most. That for whatever reason, what they've been doing has been bugging you and bugging you more and bugging you more to the state when you say, I've had it with you. You know, and whatever comes after that next is going to be the opposite of love, whatever it is. All right. It means to put up with people. Restrain yourself from lashing out of, ang- out of, out of anger, in anger. You know what the opposite of macrothemeo is? Being short-tempered. Do you ever have somebody in your life, maybe it's you, who is short-tempered, always lashing out, always, ah, I can't take this anymore. You know, uh, for five minutes somebody does something and they're already, you know, fit to be tied. Short-tempered. Well, this doesn't really something we say in the English, but the opposite of that is long-tempered. If you, it takes a long, long, long time before you would, you know, start to get angry. That's, that's the idea. Look at James chapter 1, verse 19. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 13, but please go to forward to James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. James, by the way, I'm starting a series in the blog on the book of James. So if you haven't signed up, you can go on the website and you'll get an email when I write one. But James is all about the acting out of love. He's not a theologian. He's like, here's what love looks like on a daily basis. And here's what it doesn't look like. Very much follows along with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Notice James, chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and what? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. The more upset you're getting with someone, the less you should say. 
Because what you say, you'll regret later. At least give yourself time to put the brakes on anger. Slow to anger. For the anger of man, write it down, does not achieve the righteousness of God. It can't. This word, macrothemeo, often used to describe God, also often used to describe Christ. Why would that be? Because God is love. Right? God is love. First John. God is love. Therefore, God is patient. See how it follows? And that's the the quality of him. My gosh, he exhibited patience throughout the whole Old Testament with his people, his nation, Israel. Patience. And he exhibits patience with us. As a matter of fact, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 9. Peter wrote this about 30 years after, maybe a little more, after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so that generation is getting old. And then people all around them are ridiculing them. You said the Lord was coming back. Where is he? Now, if that was happening 30 years after the Lord rose from the dead, we know it's certainly happening now. Things have gone as they always have. There's no rapture. There's no judgment. Right? Well, this is what Paul is dealing with. How does he say? What does he say? He says, you're thinking the Lord is just slow. You know, he's just kind of forgotten about it. He hasn't gotten around to it yet. No. As some count slowness. In other words, he's slow about his promise. No. Only the way you think about being slow. Why? Because he has patience toward you. He's talking to the one. Look, the ones that will ridicule us are mostly unbelievers. And he's saying, you don't even understand. The reason why he hasn't come back yet is for you. Your benefit to give you a time to believe in Jesus Christ. The irony, isn't it? Right? He says he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. By the way, the coming to repentance is a manner with which the Jews thought about salvation. Don't get tripped up on that. Right? Peter, as James, is writing to a Jewish group. Okay? It means this love is kind. Now that's the next one. Love is kind. That's the second one. Love exhibits kindness. It means this. It means to provide something beneficial. See, a lot of times we think kindness is kind of like a smile. Kindness is this and that. You know what it is? It's providing something beneficial for someone as a gracious act, imitating the Lord. That's kindness. Again, kindness acts. You can't say, I'm a kind person, if you're not providing something beneficial for someone as a gracious act. That's real kindness. That's the point. Now, love will act in kindness to the extent that you are acting in love. You will act in kindness, continue to provide things that are beneficial, even when the other person is unkind. That's the test to see if it's supernatural. A lot of people can do something when they want something in return. It's, it's kind of easy to be kind to people who are kind to you, right? And we often think, well, that's good, and that builds us up, and sure. But the test is when somebody is doing unkind things to you. The opposite. Doing something hurtful rather than beneficial. Love is not jealous. Love does not covet what other people have. Love doesn't envy others to the extent that they're, that they're acting in such a way as to either put them down or to, in some cases, try to take away what they have. No, love doesn't do that. This is, by the way, the first negative statement, what love doesn't do. And, of course, the Corinthians... We know 
They were envious of what others had. For example, please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, four, yeah, back. 1 Corinthians, we're back in 1 Corinthians now, chapter 3, verse 3. Love doesn't covet what others have. Love doesn't envy others. The Corinthians were envious of what others had. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 3. For you are still fleshly. Being fleshly is the opposite of love. Being, by definition, the flesh with its lusts and desires is all about you, all about me. Think about it. It's just me, me, me. It may be, may be hating myself at the time, but it's still directed at me. That's the flesh, okay? It's the opposite of love. If you Mark it down. If you're still fleshly, in other words, your life is still marked in such a way that it's really not all that different from unbelievers and how they live. And how will you know that? Because you'll see jealousy and strife among you. You'll, be, you'll be, be rivals with other people. You'll be trying to keep up with the Joneses and that sort of thing. But since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Paulos. You not, are you not mere men? Are you not exhibiting jealousy and strife? Love is the opposite. What's the opposite of what, what I just described? That, and this is hard, especially if you have somebody who's a rival, or even worse, somebody who's always putting it in your face about how great they are and their achievements and the children. You know how some people can be boastful. Well, love doesn't care. Love puts that all aside. It says, you know what? I love this person. I'm happy for their success, even if they're coming back to me and making me feel bad or feeling less. I'm still happy for their success. You know, I'm a, I'm a Patriots fan, but once in a while I'm happy when the Dolphins win. Once in a while. Actually, all the time now. I discovered that every time the... Every, no, I don't want them to win anymore. Every time the Dolphins have won this year, the Patriots have lost. So interesting dichotomy there. I don't know what that means. In any event, I'm getting off the subject. Love is pleased with the success of others, no matter what it is, no matter how. In other words, think about the Miss America beauty pageant. You're in the final three, ladies. You know what that means. One of you will be crowned, right? And then you, your name is not called to be third. You're thinking, wait a minute, I could be first. You're standing there, and you know, they all, I don't know why they do this. They all hug. And, but then, then the name is revealed, and it's not you. You see, that's when love has to be pleased, not faking it, but really pleased with the success of others. I can see why she was given it. I'm glad I had the opportunity to compete and that sort of thing. Love is pleased with the success of others. Look back at 1 Corinthians 12. Paul dealing with us being members of the body, us all having gifts that are supposed to work together for the common good, understanding that that's not what was going on. Paul is here essentially described in love, though he doesn't say it right out. He'll say it, of course, we just did. Love is not jealous. Love is pleased with the success of others. Look, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Not natural. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. That's love. That's, that's a great definition of love. If one of you is suffering, all of us are suffering with you. If there's some reason why you're honored or blessed, we're all rejoicing. Okay? That's a supernatural thing. It's not the flesh. Love does not brag or boast. Well, we know the Corinthians love to boast. 
They were always trying to find ways in which they were better than the other guy. The letter has many examples of this. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. See, there's a different way, I suppose, of, of teaching this uh, chapter. But it's right here. And I, I found at the end of it, I'm thinking, wow. Maybe I was too negative. Of course, Paul is, you know. But then I, saw, I started to understand that, you know, if all you do is put love on a pedestal, and you don't bring it into your own life and say, you know what, here's where I need to work these things. When he says what love doesn't do, and I'm doing it. See, it causes us to reconsider, to be humble, to realize that this is real life. This isn't just some statement on a postcard or a, or a poster. It's real life. Notice, this is what was going on with them. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? Well, of course, they all did. They all thought they were better. What do you have that you did not receive? That's a great question to get us in a frame of mind that we're going to love others. What did you have that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received, that you did not receive? You can flip that around. If anyone receives a blessing, it's because God gave it to them. Okay? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it, as if you produced it? See, they were boasting. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Here we have it again. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now remember the context in chapter 5. A man was having sex with his father's wife. Okay? And they, some, they were boasting about it. Not him, but they were. Bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, you have to say, well, they must have been pretty arrogant. They must have been pretty clueless. They must have thought somehow that they were libertines. It's interesting, that word. Probably don't hear it much anymore. I'm free to do what I want. You know? But it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Look how free this man is. He's living his best life. He's having sex with his father's wife. We can do whatever we want. That's boasting. I mean, it's gross, but it's also boasting. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Okay, that's what love doesn't do. What's the opposite of boasting? Humbling yourself, right? Not, you know, instead finding what's good about others and boasting about them. Being very low-key about the things that others might boast about. Okay, not coming out and always boasting, hey, look at this, look at that, look what I've accomplished. No, it's humility. Like Christ said, um, you know this expression, he said it in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant. That would have been very convicting to the first of the Corinthians, especially the rich and the powerful. The greatest among you shall be your servant. That servant, that one indentured servant who's been walking around and serving you for, for seven years, he's greater than you. You, you think you're a patrician and a great business person and all of that. You don't understand what love is all about. Whoever exalts himself, boasts, brag, shall be humbled. Believe me. There will come a time when that will come back around. You know, and other people will be tempted to say, didn't you just boast about that? Hmm, not what happened, you know. Because that person, too, would be violating the same principle of love. So we don't want that. But the opposite of boasting, humbling yourself. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Love is not arrogant. Love does not get puffed up with pride. This time of year, I shake my head 
because Christmas commercials are everywhere. You know, it used to be that this car company would advertise how somebody would wake up on Christmas and there'd be a beautiful, I don't know, BMW or Maserati with a bow on it. You know what I'm talking about? And up until this year, it was somebody else, at least, giving them a gift. Well, you know what it is this year? They're giving themselves the car for Christmas. Merry Christmas, John. You've been such a good boy. I think John is going to buy John a new car. That's arrogance. You know what I'm saying? That's puffed up with pride. They say like, oh, I've been good this year. You know, infantile, right? Like when you were a kid, Santa knows if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. I've been a good boy this year, you know? Adults. Childish. Because you know what? Whatever you're arrogant about, you have to think about that. Well, how, why are you, why, how did you get that thing that you're so arrogant about? It's because God gave it to you. It's nothing about you. See, arrogance is foolish. It's ridiculous. It's silly. All right. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Because they were, Corinthians, with nothing else, they were arrogant. 1 Corinthians 4. It's actually 6. I don't know, a typo there. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Okay. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So that in us, notice the role model, you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Arrogance. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. Go forward just a little bit to chapter 5, verse 1. We saw that they boasted about this, but what came first? Look, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. They thought they were freer than the Gentiles to do whatever the heck they wanted. But really, they were being more disgusting and gross than even the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant about it. You should have mourned and you didn't. If you had mourned rather than be arrogant, I would know because the one who had done this deed would already have been removed from your midst. Go forward to chapter 8, verse 1. I'm just revisiting places we've already visited. You know, we've gone through this section by section starting in chapter 1. So we've seen this before, but notice in a new light. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. What does knowledge do? Knowledge makes arrogant. Isn't that true? Knowledge puffs up. You can be really careful. You know, I'm the smartest one in the room. You know, the best and the brightest. You know what the best and the brightest brought us? The Vietnam War in that generation. Be careful when you think you have all the knowledge, you know. And think about that in terms of other people, too. Be a little bit weary of people that think that they have, all, they have it all down pat. They have all the knowledge. Why? Because they mark it down, they're going to be puffed up and arrogant. Instead, love, which is the greatest of all, edifies. Love considers others and builds them up. Note the need here for humility and how arrogance is the opposite of love. All right, back to chapter 13. Now verse 5. Well, I'm officially here to let you know we are not going to get done with this section today. We're just not. That's okay. What we'll do, I'll have to make a decision about whether I'll come back to it 
or move on. Don't, you don't have to worry about that. Just come next week and see. All right. 1 Corinthians 13.5. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not act unbecomingly. That word unbecomingly is it's a lot of loss. We don't really, what does that mean anymore? You know, unbecomingly. This is what it means. Love does not engage in shameful activities. Love does not act in defying social and moral standards. Love does not act in a way that results in disgrace, embarrassment, and shame, indecent behavior. To act shamefully. And the Corinthians were engaged in several kinds of shameful activities. The man we've already seen who married his father's I mean, who had sex with his father's wife. Women who stepped out of social norms. Remember, that was the issue with, that, with wearing the hat in the worship service. Men who got drunk at the communion feast. This was shameful behavior. That's not love. Love does not seek its own. Its own what? Its own interest. Its own desires. Its own ambitions and glory. Love doesn't seek glory. Love doesn't seek its own. 1 Corinthians 10.24. Paul has said this already. Now in verse chapter 10, little review of where we've been so far. Nothing wrong with that. Idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.24. In all things, do it all for God's glory. In all things, do it all in love. In all things, think about your neighbor before yourself. In all things. 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. A really simple thing, but that's love. See, some of the simplest things are the most difficult to live in, right? Forgiveness. One word. One word. And yet, and yet we will continue to have to come back again and again. And be careful. Don't think you've already mastered forgiveness. That's a mistake. Well, you know, boy, I, I forgave the most difficult person ever. I don't have to forgive anymore. I got the star, I got the check mark, I'm checked off in that area. Never do that. (laughs) Never think that you've arrived when it comes to any of these things. Because you haven't. You know how I know that? Because you still have flesh. You still have the sin in your body. And as soon as you look the other way and think it's not there, surprise! You'll be there stronger than ever. Yeah, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Love does not seek its own, but that of his neighbor. Or in Philippians 2. I'm just going to read it to you. Okay, but you can go back there later. But I hope, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Why? So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your situation. I'm sending Timothy. Notice this. I have no one else of kindred spirit who what? Who will be generally concerned for your welfare. Now this is a heck of an indictment of all the other guys. They were fine. But he said, Timothy was the one I know is genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's rare. It's rare to be able to know that I'm going to send somebody to a group of people and all he's going to be interested in is their welfare. I'm not talking about the welfare check. I'm talking about their well-being. Their well-being. They all, everybody else, notice, seeks after his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's an indictment. That's humbling. I mean, he could say that about the men closest to him that he sent different places. Think about that. 
Well, of course, we'll know about those same people because they'll all abandon him after he's in prison. Just like all of the apostles except John abandoned Christ when he went to the cross. Don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're just as weak, just as fallible, and at times just as selfish, easily distracted, totally wrapped up in our own lives, not generally concerned for the welfare of others. Or in a very simple way, when you start asking this question, you're in trouble. The question is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? You know, somebody says, hey, I need your help with something. And you snap back at them. Oh, yeah, what's in it for me? You know, that you know at that point that you are not, you are seeking your own, right? What's in it for me? That's a good test. When you see yourself saying that, alarm bells ought to go off. It's not that we don't have needs, but the attitude of saying, you know what, I'm not going to help somebody unless I get something back in return. It's my own interests that really count. And if there's one word that would sum up the behavior of the people of Corinth, it would be this. It would be selfishness. That one word, selfishness. That's really what Paul's been dealing with, selfishness. And you know, what's the opposite of selfishness? Well, you can come up, what's that? Kindness, right? Love, of course. Yeah, generosity. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what the best, I think, is the real opposite of selfishness? This. This. God's Son came down from heaven. Why? Because He was generally concerned about your well-being and mine. He, became the, he took on human nature. Remained God, became human. Can you see how much of a step down that is? You know, we don't even want to like, humble ourselves to help somebody in need that is not very attractive to us. God's son came down and nobody was attractive in any way. We were his enemies of his father. And yet he went to the cross and died for us. You see, that's the opposite of selfishness. And that's love. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you so much that you are love. Your son demonstrated your love at the cross. We thank you now that because of the power of the Spirit, and the fact that he keeps pouring love into our hearts. We now have the ability to love in the same way. Not the same circumstances, but in the same way. Laying down our lives for others. Father, you've also in this passage today showed us the opposite of that. How do we know when we're not laying down our lives for others? And these different tests that we can see in chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. Help us to return there again and again. To check in. To check in and say, to what degree have I been living in accordance with the love that God, the Holy Spirit, has poured into my heart? And I know that I won't in some areas. And I know that I'll need to draw on the love of God because it's not anything I have in order to improve, in order to develop, to grow. We just thank you that you've given us the opportunity to do that. And as we close today, Father, we also want to pray for the saints who are in very difficult circumstances. And so often they're forgotten. Well, help us not to forget. Help us to help in any way that we can, Father. Help us to pray of all things. And Father, we also ask for your, your blessing, your comfort, your care, your concern for those among us that are dealing with difficult things right now. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a personal situation. Situation. Maybe it's financial. Whatever it is, Father, you know. 
And we know that you have promised that all things will work together for good. You will be working all things together for good. And sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to trust. It's a life of faith. But we should trust with the confidence that everything you say in your word is true. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. All right. I want to remind everybody that one of the things we're called to do as members of the body of Christ is to give the good news to others, to the lost. And so, by way of reminder, all right, here's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is that we were all, every human being was born dead in our trespasses and sins. Totally lost. And there we would have remained unless God loved us as he did and sent us his one and only son. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, believing that, saying, I'm a sinner, Christ died for sinners, Christ died for me. Believe that. Believe that he was buried, showed that he had died, and then on the third day he was raised from the dead by his heavenly Father. A miracle. The one thing above all else that ought to bring attention to the truth is that miracle. And by the way, it is the best attested event in the ancient world. There's about 14 different ways in which you can prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That means that whoever believes in Christ will never perish but has eternal life. Again, we're all sinners. Christ, the perfect Son of God, became man. He went to the cross and died for us and all the sins of the world, whoever it is you're witnessing to. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead by his Father. So that whoever believes in Christ will never perish but have eternal life and will be declared righteous before God forever. That's the greatest thing that anyone could ever hear. That's the most critical, important, valuable thing that you got, that I have, is that truth. We are to speak it in love. We are to, we are to encourage people to listen and hear and consider. It's the greatest thing of all. And, and, and honestly, if people didn't have the barriers and the, and the um, eyelids closed, spiritually speaking, they would see it, wouldn't they? But they can't. And that's why we also have to trust the fact the Holy Spirit is working on them so that they understand, yeah, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. Yeah, God's standard is perfect righteousness. Oh, I am far from that. And I understand that God is righteous and just, and it only makes sense that he would judge me for my sins. And then I am ready to hear that there's some way in which God can rescue me from that, and he has. So just realize, just relax, realize the Holy Spirit is working on unbelievers in your life. Not saying they'll all come around, because as we know, they won't. But at the end of the day, it's his power. It's the power of the word of the cross, and yet we have the word of the cross. So speak it. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you again for the gospel of Jesus Christ and help us to, to preach it. And Father, we also ask that you would be, be here every time we gather together. And we ask that you be here on Thursday for our Bible study. We also ask, Father, that we would continue to pray for one another. And that means seeking out and understanding what people are going through so that we know what to pray for. 
And Father, we would ask again that the Holy Spirit would continue to pour his love into our hearts so that we can, by your power, live in the walk that you've laid out for us here in 1 Corinthians 13. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just a couple of reminders again. Next Sunday, December 15th, we're having a luncheon. Again, please let Jack Bovenet know what you plan to bring. Also, bring any prayer requests you have to us. We pray on Thursday after Bible study. And you can write them down and put them in the box. We had a couple of those this week. Or you can go on our website, and there's a place where you can type in your prayer requests. We want to know, because we want to know what to pray for. All right, if you have any questions today about the message or the gospel or anything else, and come on up and speak with me after service. Unlike my new puppy, I don't bite. All right, you're dismissed. Enjoy this day.